Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital or you are looking to get your company acquired or just need some sound financial planning and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at PantheraAdvisors.com or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at Alejandro at PantheraAdvisors.com. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a pretty interesting founder, you know, a founder that uh, definitely, you know, got started very, very early on, you know, at, at his age and and a remarkable, remarkable journey. So I think that a lot of you are going to get inspired with his story. So I guess without further ado, let's welcome Rusty Turek to the show. Thank you very much for having me. So Rusty, so originally born and raised there in Slovakia. So how was life growing up in Slovakia? Well, I was born in Czechoslovakia, which was a communist friends country, right? So we, we yeah. were associated with the Soviet bloc. I don't remember too much, but I do remember things like waiting for a milk and bread every Wednesday for two hours in the cold. I'm from very, very cold country or very cold place in the country. Um, I grew up in the mountains and um, essentially every Wednesday with my mom, we had to stand in line for hours, you know, to get just basic foods, basic groceries. And then the communist era ended and kind of a boom of entrepreneurship started. People didn't know what that means. We didn't have basic infrastructure. For instance, we didn't have IRS because everything was owned by the by the government prior. You didn't need to tax people because there was nothing to tax from. All of the money was given by the government. And so while we did have an IRS as a as a institution, it just didn't work the way that it worked in the US or somewhere else. And so a lot of other things didn't exist properly. We did have lawyers, but you couldn't sue anyone for anything. So the lawyers were mostly for suing people by the state rather than the other way around. So it was quite an adjustment. And so I saw my father... Uh, getting his hands wet as an entrepreneur. And this was 70 years, you know, 50 to 70 years, uh, depends on the lookup uh, uh, of, of no entrepreneurship in the country. So for him, it was very challenging to have even ba the basic things. How do you start a company? What does that mean? How do you balance uh, your books? What what does that even mean? Right? Like, how do you run a healthy balance sheet? How do you really manage your inventory? How do you do just basic stuff. And they had very, very hard time uh, with that because there were no books. All of the books were liquidated when communists took over. And so there was no anything about entrepreneurship. Everything was in foreign languages, which nobody spoke, right? Because they didn't allow people to speak English or German or other languages. So it was fairly challenging to, 
for them to start and watching them to start. And I always thought entrepreneurship was this magical kind of thing. And I told my father when I was, I think, 11 that I do want to be an entrepreneur because it felt that it's amazing that he can make a business by talking to people. That was his job, right? Going to people and talking to them. And that somehow amounted to a business. And I thought that was uh, the best thing I have ever seen. And in your case, I mean, obviously it was not a, all a path full of roses. You know, at 14 years old, you left your home. So, um, I mean, that's a pretty life-changing, life-altering event. So, so tell us about that process because that obviously got you for six months being homeless. Well, um, I got into fights with my family a lot. I was struggling in school. I was struggling at home. And uh, it started getting to a place where we were, you know, getting into fistfights with my father. And um, it was just not a good place for any of us. And so I decided, as a, as a very strong personality, I decided I am better than anyone else and I can do this on my own, which was a, you know, childish mistake and child, childish foolishness. But packed in quotes i had literally nothing i had the clothes on me i in fact i actually went and bought a new clothes with my saved money and i've returned the clothes because i want nothing to have with them or from them and um i went i thought you know i will hang out with some friends but my friends were 14 15 they obviously call and hang out with me call and shelter me call and do stuff for me and so i ended up being alone on the streets and um when the reality kicked in, it was, uh, you know, quite challenging. So um, fortunately, it was coming to a summer. Otherwise, in, in winter, I think I will have frozen to death. Um, and then learning to live with that, uh, you know, the, the more narrow. I, one thing that people maybe don't realize is once you become homeless, uh, life becomes very simplistic. You have only very few goals in life. There's no future. There's no planning. There's no nothing. Um, in my country, it was illegal to have a bank account before you are 18. It was illegal to work before you are 18. So I had to do all sorts of things in order to actually be able to function. So for instance, for three months, I worked at a bar um, where I was helping with anything they needed. And I was stowing all of the money in my socks because I couldn't, I couldn't put them anywhere. There was no bank account that I could open. There was nowhere to put the money. And I didn't trust anyone. So at some point, I had you know, dozens of bills in my socks um, every day. And so that was quite interesting. Um, but, you know, over time, I was able to figure things out. I was able to convince a lady to rent me an apartment to which I could have moved uh, into. And she was very skeptical. So she asked for three months up front, which was insane amount of money to me at that point. That was a process. But over time, I you know got to kind of used to to uh, to that kind of life and figure out what what is necessary. The challenge obviously was for a person that was obsessed with computers since very young age. Um, I didn't have computers for years because I couldn't afford it. I didn't have mobile phone for uh, four and a half years because I just couldn't afford it. And so it took really long time to get the baseline of a you know of an average person. So then in this case, you know, you see, you know, a lot of uncertainty, you know, during those days. And I think that, you know, part of, uh, of being an entrepreneur, you know, is, is being able to deal with uncertainty as well and to deal with whatever is in front of you. How do you think that, that this phase in your life shaped you to, to really become who you are today? Well, I'm definitely risk prone to a point of maybe a little bit too much. 
because I know where the bottom is and the bottom is so far from where I am usually uh, at this point that I am willing to sacrifice much more than maybe other people. So there were times with this company's uh, life where I was willing to go not just in the debt, but also way deep into that hole. And I didn't, it didn't kind of move me as much as maybe other people. Like I didn't lose sleep over it because I understood what the consequences are and how far I can really go, which is the positive. The negative is I have a very unhealthy relationship with money. Um, I think people react one of the two ways or they're obsessed with money or they kind of ignore them. And I'm in the ignore them camp. Money don't mean anything to me. And so I kind of work with them very frivolously, which is not necessarily a good thing. But at least in my personal life, in my professional life, I try to be more careful. But there are some, you know, some of those. The the other one is it took me years to start trusting people. I was very um, internally kind of closed off uh, because I always understood that people will take advantage of you. And that was my experience once I ended up on the street. People do want to um, kind of uh, get ahead through you, right? It's essentially a very simple zero-sum game, especially by the people in the same situation. The fact that someone is left behind doesn't matter if you are advancing. And so that definitely took a while to wipe out. And there is a lot of other habits. For instance, food to this day, I cannot not finish a plate in front of me. It just doesn't mentally allow me to because I know what hunger looks like and it's not a pleasant thing. I'm wondering as well, you know, because obviously up until now, up until now, literally like 22 years later, you haven't spoken back to your parents. Do you think that, uh, you know, you've you've been able to get complete, you know, with that chapter? I mean, and how were you able to really get to to that completion moment? Yeah, I'm not, not in touch with them. I, you know, it's 22 years. I left when I was 14. I, I at this point, it's so far um, from where I was. Like I have very hard times not remembering them. I haven't. I don't know anything about them. I don't keep in touch. I don't follow them. I don't know anything about the family in general. And so it doesn't really impact me emotionally anymore. I think there were times when I was much younger, but uh, at this point, it's so long ago in comparison how long I was with them that it kind of feels very distant memory. And sometimes it feels it just never happened. So I don't think there is a way for me to go back because to me, they are strangers at this point. Absolutely. I can hear you. So, so in this case for you, you know, when, when you finish, you know, high school, really, I mean, you, you joined their uh, cybersecurity consultancy in Boston. I mean, all of a sudden you go from Slovakia, from living on the streets for six months to all of a sudden you find yourself in the land of opportunity in the United States of America. I mean, how, how do you land in Boston? I mean, what a, it seems like a long journey from where you were on the streets to really being able to hear to go after your dream. So tell us about that transition. Yeah, well, so I got lucky. I got recruited in Slovakia by a few folks to help them to start a computer cafe, which were very popular at that time um, across the world. People didn't have internet at home. It was very hard to get a connection. And so I opened it up with a few other folks, the very first internet cafe in the city. And through that, I was able to get back to computers. Um, and from there, I was able to you know, explore other things, including security. So, you know, the, the white side of the security is usually these consultancies and the black side of the, community, the security 
is uh, what we call a hacking, at least in the kind of very simplistic form. And so, you know, 15, 16 year old me didn't care about consequences or anything. So I played around and wreck havoc wherever I called. And uh, the owner of the company noticed me. We started exchanging some messages and emails over time. And he kind of became um, a second parent to me. He was, uh, or still is, 18 years of my senior. So he became uh, more like an internet mentor. And um, as I was finishing our high school, he started pressing on me, why you don't come here? Why we don't do this? And um, first, you know, it felt like, it's just not even possible. Something that I cannot really do technically, it doesn't really add up to me. But over time, I was able to see that this could be an opportunity and um, I didn't have much. So that, that also meant I didn't have much to lose. Um, I packed my hard drive. That was the only thing I took. Um, I packed my hard drive, three t-shirts, uh, some underwear and um he sent me money via Western Union. That was my first experience with it. Um, he sent me money for the ticket. I bought a ticket and then flew to the States, went through the customs and everything, which was kind of quite interesting, and then um, joined them in Boston. And it was, you know, different world, especially I remember the prices were so off. A cup of coffee in my country at that point cost like 10 cents, maybe less. Uh, loaf of bread was maybe 40 cents um, and I came to Boston and I remember Starbucks was two dollars and I thought they are joking uh, I thought it was like literally the most hilarious joke that someone can pay two dollars for a cup of coffee because it felt to me that it's all of the money of the world um, that it's so expensive that one cannot afford and as I got to meet my colleagues and people the the money discrepancy was quite severe they were willing to spend $100 on a dinner. I don't think I, in my life I, I heard of people spending that kind of money for a whole month of groceries. And so felt very different. And it was very early times in my country as it was trying to get out of the communism and come closer to the Western world. And so the discrepancy between the prices were quite severe. And it took me a while to get used to, to the new world and to the new opportunities. Yeah, got it. And obviously, you know, like what, what something that was really interesting here is that you end up joining Google. I mean, out of all places, you know, I mean, it's just like so crazy, you know, your story, Rusty. I mean, it's unbelievable the incredible shifts that happen in life. I mean, you end up in one of the biggest companies in the world, you know, to, to work as a, as an engineer. So how did that, you know, be, transition or or exciting chapter happen in your life well when i was joining it wasn't it was by far not the largest company it was actually quite small i think it had only around 700 engineers okay um, it was big by my account but nothing like it's today yeah of course 250,000 employees today yes um so we got acquired the company i worked for we got acquired by them and uh, in the process, they looked at all of the profiles of all of the employees and they excluded me and one other person. The other person, for reasons I don't know, but me for no for lack of education. I was uh, 19. I didn't have any college degree or any advanced degrees of any kind. And they essentially said, this is not how this company works. However, my boss essentially stood behind us and said, oh, you take everybody or you take nobody. So he risked 
the acquisition for two of us to essentially get in, which I am obviously eternally thankful for. And as such, I was able to join the company. I joined uh, what was then called the enterprise team as a security engineer, uh, which uh, was mostly Gmail. Uh, we were just getting Google Maps and they just acquired Vitaly, which just became Google Docs. And so, you know, I joined a fairly small team of four people. Um, it was uh, very early on. Um, it, it was fairly, fairly, fairly small. And I do remember in the three years as I was leaving, uh, we grew, just the team grew to 1,200 people and the company grew to 25,000 people. And uh, that was a remarkable growth. I do remember every month or so, we were struggling with the space. So my table always got chunk into halves then quarters i had four people and then they moved me and then i again started a full table then they halved it and i had the roommate essentially on that table or desk mate and then they halved it again so now i have three others and they moved me again and this happened like a clockwork every three months i also changed managers maybe dozens dozens of times at this point i will not even be able to count them it felt like every week someone knew was my manager so that was very interesting and i learned a lot obviously um about the scale about the technology about uh, how the company works um, i also learned some very unhealthy habits um google had this fortunate and unfortunate situation that he couldn't do anything wrong so we thought that we are you know the, the biggest geniuses in the world because no matter what we did the company went up yeah. Uh, the price went up, the stock went up. I joined after the IPO. Everything was going up constantly. And so I do remember when um, my boss said that if Gmail ever gets hacked, we are over. And then after I left, they did get hacked, but nothing happened. Right? It's like essentially the company couldn't do wrong. And it was the time when I told people in the Bay Area that I work for Google and they looked at me like a second coming of Jesus. And it was very different experience, right? And one of the largest changes in my life, I went for from very, very modest lifestyle to abundance of money to a point that essentially there, there was nothing to buy at, at some point. You know, it was like not for a kid that didn't know anything about the world. Yeah. And it took me very long time to square these two things out because I, you know, in 18, I was living essentially in a studio apartment alone barely surviving and then by the time i turned 20 i had hundreds of thousands of dollars in bank account i could have bought anything i wanted and it didn't really square well and it took me years to figure out my relationship with money how to use them because money is a tool and yeah. you need to know how to man manipulate it how to manage it in order to you know have benefit of it. and so it took me quite a time and do you remember that event that got you to be more self-centered with with money i mean it wasn't one thing but i do remember leaving google and walking so we had you know at that point we had everything they they bought the groceries for you they gave you haircuts like you didn't have to worry about nothing essentially and so i do remember quitting google because uh some some situations that were happening and i was kind of fed up with everything and i walked into um i walked into a store um safeway and um I looked at avocado and I think it was like a dollar. And I thought I'm I'm dreaming because it was so expensive. And I started realizing now I'm on my own. And now actually the money will not be coming in. Now they will be coming out. And so that was kind of the first 
uh, first very realization with the reality, maybe or maybe kind of crash with reality, and then over time, for instance, this is this is one of the things that you can tell when someone does have money or grew up with money, and when someone didn't. Just learning the basic things, like what's the different between different types of prosciuttos, right? Or what the Parmesan means, or what is a aged vintage wine? What does that mean? What does that feel like? Or how do you select them? How do you buy them? How do you spend money on certain things? And that simple thing that most people don't even think about is something that it took me years to go through, right? Because the world is fairly large and there is a lot of things to learn. And so it took me a very long time to figure things out for myself. And um, I think I was fortunate enough that I didn't care about money that much. So I was willing to invest into these experiences. So then in this case, you know, for you, you leave Google. I mean, obviously you start this journey of building and scaling, you know, a bunch of companies that ultimately led you into PEX uh, today, you know, but the, the most importantly is Synopsy, you know, which is uh, something that you did first, you know, like uh, you went at it, you know, like you you were able to sell the assets to Imperva, but then you started Synopsy again because they did not acquire the name. Whatever happened, you know, the second time that uh, that you were doing Synopsy? Uh, well, so the idea was to build a social version of IMDb. So I always believed people would love to share this information about each other, what they watch, and through their recommendation and stuff. And I think I was right on that uh, on that goal. Um, we were able to quickly get around a million users or so. It was the time when million users was monetizable and it moved under our feet to 10. So I do remember um, other companies telling us um, that, you know, maybe a six months prior is like, if you ever reach million users, we'll be willing to pay you for doing X. And then once we reached out, they said, well, now it's 10 million. And I do feel like I do remember that, how I felt betrayed that we worked so hard to get here and we just couldn't get past that. And so we pivoted towards B2B. And the idea was, what if we provide Netflix-like recommendations for everybody? So there's you know, all sorts of other companies, mostly set the boxes that could take advantage of these. And I thought that was very late to the market. And so we got some set of boxes to start using us, some platforms, some companies. And um, it was going fine. The problem was there was no market. And then, you know, as the time was going, I was looking at this and it's like, do I want to be in a company? Do I want to do this company for the rest of my life? Essentially a struggle. One thing I did not know is there will be the boom in VOD and everybody will start having their own service and they will actually need services like these but i just didn't see that coming and i don't think even if i did um, i don't think i will ever be that passionate about it but the part that actually led to pex was very interesting because um we had no money essentially for the company it was mostly funded by three individuals and me and um we uh we didn't have any kind of money for marketing so i took uh, an idea that was, what if we build a Shazam for video? So that will be the kind of the self-propelling marketing. The idea was that people will love to download this application because it's going to be so clever and it's going to do so many things. People will be, you know, just it will attract everybody to it. And that's actually what led to the initial algorithm for Synopsy. 
and uh, and that what then translated into PEX when Synopsy was closed because um, it was just not. I d- I didn't see the future of the company, and um, I was sitting on these algorithms that I had nothing to do with, and so I w- I went to pitch the idea for Shazam for video to Paramount Pictures, and they kind of looked at each other and said, "Yeah, nobody cares." But people copy our content all over the internet. Maybe you can look at that. And so I started looking. It took me a few months to even get the basic idea. I have never heard of copyright. I never understood any of things about UGC or user-generated content like YouTube. I knew nothing about it. I knew YouTube existed. That was that was most likely it. Maybe three or four months of research kind of led to the idea that this actually could be viable, not only as a business of identifying content but what if a licensing was possible and uh, that's where i kind of started pex and um i established it in um february 14 2014 which uh i realized three years later when i was signing some documents that it was valentine's day and uh it took years before actually the market materialized for us in the direction that was getting more obvious to the investors than to the outside world so even the company struggled for the first four years very significantly. We couldn't raise any money. Everything was funded by me, essentially, and very few angels to here and there that put some money in. And um, it, it was very humbling again. And it felt like for a very long time, it felt like this is going to be a disaster. And um, I will I will have to move on and go maybe back to Google or something else because uh, my, money will, my, my money was running out. So then, so then, what ended up being the business model of PEX for the people that are listening to really understand it? Uh, well, so initial business model um, is based on the idea that um, UGC is becoming a dominant form of communication. In fact, YouTube just outran Netflix in uh, form of revenue. So UGC, when I started this company, there was YouTube, Vimeo, and Dailymotion. Most people barely remember these companies. Although Vimeo just given public, there was no video or audio of any kind on Twitter, Facebook, and many other platforms. And so when I pitched this to the rights holders, the owners of the rights, or the platforms, or the investors, everybody looked at me funny and said, "Nobody cares. Nobody's using these. Nobody." YouTube was below billion dollar revenue company. It was, you know, tiny. Nobody really paid attention to it. And then what started happening is more UGC started becoming um, more popular. The tools started becoming more structural. Phones got better. They got better cameras. Wine was a big boon to this. Um, it was obvious there was a hunger for it. Obviously, today we have TikTok and others that we can tell that the market is there. But not only the market is there, there's actually a business in it. And this is very interesting. Twitter started in 2014 try the buy button. Like if you see something that you like, you could buy it through Twitter and nobody used it. And so they closed it down and they are bringing it back because the market changed. The society shifted enough, but now it's one of the most dominant ways how to buy uh, clothes and other things on Instagram, for instance. And so, or it's at least the dominant business model on Instagram. And so this is very interesting because it becomes quite significant and popular. And so we, when I looked at the market, it didn't look likely that it's going to happen in a very short period of time. But over time, in maybe five years or so, 
it was very obvious to me that this market has to materialize because people will have better and better devices. They will want to share more and more. And eventually there will be a challenge of every person that creates content is by default a rights order, by law. And these people will want eventually to retain their rights and manage their rights and be able to say who who owns what and what, what shall happen when you want to use that. And so the original business model was to work with the largest rights holders and give them access to these platforms. Obviously, the platforms as they were growing, the rights holders were more interested. And so we charged kind of a SaaS fee. Uh, we extended on, expended on that fee later on where we added commission. That means if you make more money, thanks to us, you, you share some upside with us. And then finally, we were able to fulfill the original vision for this company and bringing what we call um, Visa of the Digital Rights. So essentially copying Visa kind of experience, three-sided marketplace infrastructure that uh, allows creators, writers, and platforms to come together and exchange licenses at a point of publishing at a speed of internet, right? And so, and the scale of internet, essentially. And so... That took seven years to materialize, and um, it helped that A, the UGC became a really dominant way of and form of communication and entertainment, and B, the society kind of got, it shifted its opinion about the big tech or its relationship with big tech, big tech. So as I mentioned, when I joined Google, people looked at me as a second coming of Jesus because I worked at Google. Yeah. However, that's not true anymore, right? So people kind of got, it, it's it's a pendulum. People sway to the other side. And as such, it allowed the governments to introduce new legislations that are essentially now tamping down the platforms and are removing all of these protections that they had. So European Union just enacted a law two years ago, which just become um, or is becoming in a, in a, a practice uh, next month. Uh, which essentially shifts the liability from the rights holders to the platforms. So platforms historically had no liability with content that was uploaded there, and now they have obligations to license everything. And so we were patient, quiet, waited, you know, worked our, our asses off essentially to deliver on this. And as such, we, we kind of popped up in a market that is now ready-made for us, and there's almost no competition. And so now a lot of investors coming to us and saying, this is genius, how, how I never even thought about it. But the reality is seven years ago, there was no market. There was no such a thing. And the society had to shift before this was possible. And so that was the bet. In fact, you guys have definitely raised some money. How much have you raised so far for the business? I think $64 million, or slightly more than that. $64 million. And then also how... How big is Apex today? I mean, anything that you can share with the listeners in terms of like maybe employees or anything else? I think we're around 100 right now. We try to stay very small and nimble. So, you know, we call how being five times bigger when it comes to body count. We try to stay very, very small, as small as we can. Yeah. Uh, while still delivering on the on the business because the challenge is, this is still not fully established business, right? So this is a market in creations, and as such, it's, it still requires a lot of work, and a lot of things have to go right 
and more sm smaller we are, more nimble we are, right? So it's much easier to turn a tugboat than it's a massive, massive boat. Uh, being big is great when you have a strong product market fit, which we do have a strong product market fit, but what we don't have is strongly developed marketing. Yeah. And so we try to stay as small as possible, trying to kind of stay focused on the on the market and giving it, giving ourselves time to actually see these being um, developed, right? And so a lot of the investments, is, I mean, we raised seven million and then we followed with fifty-seven million or around. And the reason why we done that and why in, in investors were so interested is because they're betting on the market, not necessarily on the company. And so we still have a lot of to prove and there is a, you know, it's still a lot of unknowns. This is not a fully developed market, but as a benefit of that, we have kind of Airbnb style situation where we are the market maker. Uh, while we have benefits over other platforms like Airbnb where our moats are quite significant. Um, because our network effects are so strong that once someone works with us, it's almost impossible to go elsewhere. It's just the same with Visa, right? Like if Visa works with your merchant and the bank and the user and the end customer has it in a in a wallet, it's almost impossible to start a next competing network because you will have to somehow sign the same amount of merchants, same amount of banks overnight. And that's almost impossible. And there is a reason why there's Visa and MasterCard, which is essentially the same thing, and no nobody else, right? Like it's it's super hard to start this. And so we are in that kind of position and we might have the network effects of Visa, but we are not there yet. So one of the questions uh, here, Rusty, that I asked the folks that come on the show is, if I bring you back in time and you have the possibility of having a chat with your younger self, with that younger Rusty that was thinking about starting PEX, what would be one piece of business advice that you would give to your younger self and why before launching the business? Honestly, um, I like it as it is. It was painful, extremely painful. Um, there were times where I personally was in the hole for half a million dollars and I didn't know how the hell I'm going to pay for that. But it made us who we are. Um, it allowed us to get to a place where nobody else got in, in the past. And this was one of the reasons why this was one of the reasons why a lot of the investors were skeptical because a lot of companies tried and most of them failed. And so I do think that the resiliency came from the experience. And one of the things why we are set up well for the market that is coming, I believe, is because we had to struggle so much, right? So if I change something along the way, I do wish it will it will have been less painful. I do wish that people have paid more attention to us. I do wish that there were you know easy path. But I do not think we will be where we are, and I do not think we will have been able to have the shot that we have now. And what has been one book that you wish you would have read sooner? Oof, uh, I read a lot of books. Uh, it's not about reading something sooner. I, I think so. I do sometimes reread some old older books that I read, and I realized that you have to be emotionally and mentally and intelligently ready for message, right? So I read certain books multiple times in the past. Let's say I was a teenager and then I read it later and then I read it later. And I take very different messages from each reread. So I don't think there's a book that will have been better 
sooner. I think most of the books are great at the time that I read them, and some of them are even too early. And so I have to go back to them and try to ingest the message once again. So is there a book that you've read the most as you look back? Definitely Papillion is one that I reread fairly often. I do like the biography of Edison. I do like the biography of uh, John D. Rockefeller and Vanderbilt. They're kind of obvious people. It's not that I learned something specific from them. It's that it gives me comfort that they had very hard times initially too, and they had to struggle. And usually it's always the kind of the same story, right? You struggle, struggle, and then you don't. And then you struggle in very different ways and uh, you have very different problems in life, right? And so it's it's comforting to me to know that there's no way out, right? Like everybody had to go through the same and nobody really escaped this. And I think the, the best analogy to that is um, working out, running, bicycling, right? It's like the first time you start running and it feels all sorts of ways challenging. And uh, if you don't like that feeling, that feeling will never go away. You will just get faster. So this is the same thing with companies, right? It's like when I started this company and I was alone or when I had the first few employees, it was literally the same challenging as today, but in different ways. So when I have five people, my biggest challenge was how do I do product? Who is going, how am I going to manage these resources? Now, when I don't have five people, now my biggest problem is how do I manage those hundred people or so, right? And so... The the challenges change, um, but the the feeling kind of stays the same, and so the the mental muscle is is uh, reacting equally to all of these challenges. I love it, Rusty. For the people that are listening, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? I am very active on Twitter. Um, my handle is Synopsy. I generally respond to everyone that reaches out through it. Um, I also have a blog that I don't publish anything on, but uh, there is a uh, email address on it. Uh, it's turek.co. Um, and so people can reach out to that. Amazing. Well, Rusty, thank you so much for being on the Deal Maker Show today. Thank you for having me. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember, that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.